0: Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here with us today. Season two is afoot and we are starting another journey into human nature. This time we're looking at the role passages play in the lives of my guests, the initiations, the transformations, the accidental, the intentful. Hold tight and listen in because we are about to journey into another incredible and beautiful series of conversations. Let's get into it. Here we go. Here we go. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm beyond grateful to have you here with me on the show today. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm super excited.
0: Me too. We've had this on the books for several weeks. And I've been excited to have this conversation for a number of reasons, particularly in season two is about passages and about the passages we all go through in our lives. And sometimes they're intentional. We choose them. We have a child. Sometimes they're accidental. An accident happens to us, but because of your expertise in addiction, and I know addiction is such a pervasive experience In many, many ways in our society and in our time. And so I wanted to get you on record and talk with you about addiction. And you've written a really powerful, beautiful book called Dopamine Nation. Um, I've listened to it twice. It's an amazing book, not because it just discusses the neuroscience of how addiction works, but because of the portraits you paint of your patients, of your clients. And so I want to first give you a minute just to introduce yourself as your professional life and and what you do in relationship to addiction. And then I want to begin by asking some questions about addiction itself.
1: Sure. Well, thank you for that wonderful intro and for listening to my book, not once, but twice. I appreciate it. So I am a psychiatrist. That means that I went to medical school and I did a residency in psychiatry. And now I'm on the faculty at Stanford University School of Medicine, In my faculty role, I see patients, I teach, and I do research. It's kind of the classic three-legged stool of academic medicine. I have been a clinical psychiatrist in the field of addiction medicine for the past 20 years. I'm sort of an accidental addiction medicine specialist. I did not think that Um, My primary area of expertise would be addiction, but it's turned out to be that just simply because of the incredible need that I saw, especially in the early 2000s, in patients that were coming in to see me. And it's been a really wonderful and rewarding career. I've discovered that treating addiction uh, is not um, a depressing or hopeless endeavor. People get better, and when they do... They transform not only their lives, but the lives of the people around them in really positive ways that I'm just really honored to witness.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the accidental part. What did you think you were going to do? And then what was the thing that brought you into uh, or the things that brought you into addiction work?
1: Hmm. Well, when I went to medical school in the 1990s, addiction was not considered a medical illness. It was not even really considered a psychiatric illness. It got some short mention in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but it was not something that was taught in medical school or even necessarily in a psychiatry residency. So when I graduated and joined the faculty in the early 2000s, um, I had no idea how to treat addiction, nor did I want to, because again, I hadn't really been trained to think of it as the purview of physicians. And also I had um, my own kind of negative bias and counter-transference toward people with addiction, a combination of the kinds of stigma that people in society have in general, but also I think some of my own internalized psychological bias because my father, who was a surgeon, was, you know, a very high-functioning alcoholic who never got treatment, um, finally got into a kind of recovery at the very end of his life. But, you know, his his alcoholism was very destructive on him and on our family life. So it was kind of a thing that I just sort of didn't want to deal with. But I'm really glad in the end that that I did.
0: Both dealing with people with addiction and your own biases and your own history.
1: Yeah, Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of, I'm really glad I ended up being a person who treats people with addiction. Yeah. And I'm glad that I, in the process, learned a lot about it. Um, Not just from a, you know, neuroscience perspective and a clinical perspective, but yes, also from my own family history um, perspective.
0: So what is addiction and why are we vulnerable to it?
1: Addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Uh, We're all vulnerable to addiction because addiction hijacks the same mental machinery that gets us to approach pleasure and avoid pain, which is exactly what's allowed us to survive over millions of years in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger.
0: So let's break the addiction part of that down.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, that definition is a very broad uh, definition, but in descriptive terms, including in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there are 11 criteria. These are phenomenological criteria, um, meaning that there's no blood test or brain scan. This is based on patterns of behavior that are both objective and subjective, and they can broadly be described as the four Cs, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences. So control means out-of-control use, using more than I planned on.
0: So the substance in the relationship is controlling you more than you're controlling it.
1: Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. And then compulsions means that a whole lot of my mental real estate is preoccupied with using, and also that there's a, le- a level of uh, automaticity to it, which a little bit you know overlaps with this idea of lack of control, But it's more than that. It's really um, a kind of autonomous, deeply habitual behavior that we are doing without even realizing we're doing it.
0: Do you think that is tied to what people might call the primitive mind or some people might call the reptilian mind or deeper intrinsic motivations we have in the brain that start shutting down, say, the path of choice or willpower or the prefrontal cortex?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's exactly what's going on, that essentially our dopamine reward pathway, which is deeply entrenched in our lizard brain or limbic brain, which is, you know, the um, older, uh, lower brain functions that are highly conserved across species and throughout evolution, stop talking to our prefrontal cortex, which is our big gray matter lobe behind our forehead, which when things are going well, the prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain are communicating. When we get in our addiction essentially that communication gets broken off and we're letting our, our limbic brain and our dopamine uh, essentially drive things instead of the other way around.
0: When that happens, when somebody is, loses control, they have compulsive behavior, maybe rooted in more ancient circuits that aren't relating with more contemporary or human circuits of, of brain circuitry. Um, and then I think you said craving?
1: Yeah, so craving, uh, craving was actually newly added to uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and it describes a sudden intense urge to use our drug of choice and it can be um, manifested as intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. It can also be a very strong physiologic phenomenon. Patients will sometimes describe sweating, uh, stomach cramping, um, a kind of overwhelmingness to the physiologic drive to get the drug and use the drug does it have to
0: technically be an addictive substance to have craving?
1: Well, I think, you know, when we're talking about it in the context of addiction, we're talking about a kind of overwhelming craving and physiologic drive toward an intoxicant of some sort. Certainly the term craving, you know, we use colloquially um, all the time in a different kind of way, you know, where we're talking about, you know, a pregnant woman craving a pickle or something like that. That's not the same thing.
0: And it's not the same as avoidance Your avoidant behaviors where you're just like, I just feel like doing something different or I want to be distracted because I don't like what's in front of me.
1: Well, let me say that craving can manifest with a variety of different narratives that we tell ourselves. I will sometimes have patients come in and say, well, I never, I never crave. That's never happened to me. But they will have these elaborate narratives around why um, it makes sense for them to use. And in a way that is a manifestation of craving. It's sort of a, you know, a compulsive rationalization that enters in and takes over. Totally. So uh, I'm so sorry, I'm
0: laughing here because it's almost like the hindbrain is like the craving is using the PFC right. to legitimize its own craving cycle, as it were.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And I'm I've been fascinated by that because, you know, our... Prefrontal cortex, what you call the PFC, is the part of our brain that tells stories, and we are story-making machines. I mean, that is where we're wired to do that, and we will often, you know, in the na- at the nanosecond level, retroactively create stories to explain sensory experiences. And one of my favorite examples of this is. Um, when we're asleep, if let's say we're sleeping on our arm and it goes numb, we will actually have dreams um, in that moment that somehow involve you know, get our arm getting cut off or crushed or something. So we're, we're very, very quick, even unconsciously, to try to explain and narrate uh, physical experiences. And that certainly happens in addiction all the time. And those narratives are powerful and they get a life of their own.
0: I like that you're talking about that because one of my questions, and I don't think we're here in the conversation, I hope we do get to it, is the difference between desire and cravings and the narrative around our impulses or compulsions or our cravings or our desires and how we find right use for that aspect of our neurology or that aspect of our human experience. But I want to, I guess, maybe go to the Lassie consequences because I think, part of addiction is one being able to recognize it. You know, I know you have this very sophisticated and this deep dive life experience, but I'm thinking about my listeners and thinking about myself and just starting to recognize addictive patterns or addictive tendencies or unconscious habits as they may be. And, and beginning to see them at play, because you, you mentioned the, the, the semi consciousness of the habits or in, in an addict's case, of the addictive pattern. But I want to look at consequences because I think consequences kind of tie that all together. And so what are the consequences that come along with being caught in the cycle of addiction?
1: The consequences are many. Um, They can play out in terms of um, debilitated health, debilitated relationships, impairment in function at work, at school, um, increased anxiety, increased depression, um, increased dysphoria, um, physical tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal; uh, potential risk of overdose and death, suicide. I mean, so the consequences are enormous, and they you know span the full range um, to the disappointment in my spouse's eyes when she realized uh, that I had been lying to her, to people. You know, losing everything and ending up in jail.
0: I love the list of the like the the medical side, but it is the, those moments of when you look at someone in the eyes or someone ends up in jail. And I think those are the very felt human things that go along with the consequences of addiction. And I think you did a really amazing job of telling stories of the people that you have worked with who are, who are willing to share their stories and let you relay their stories of addiction. And so, you know, for the listeners, definitely check out dopamine nation for that more personal and intimate portrait of those consequences. For me, when I think about it, one of the main consequences I've gathered from the challenge that comes along with addiction is, and you said this in another podcast, I think you might've said this on the Rogan podcast, when you stop organizing your life around or your time around rewards and you experience time in a different way that's not based on reward cycles of, of pleasure seeking and pain avoidance. So I want to kind of dial into that very personal experience of what happens when the dopamine circuits are hijacking us. Yeah. You get where I'm coming from?
1: Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about like the neuroscience of the dopamine reward pathway and kind of what's going on there?
0: Yes, I do. And the kind of personal part to it, which I think you started to name, but there's for me a kind of loss of presence like Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. and there's a different experience that happens Mm -hmm. with time Mm -hmm. and how time is experienced so Mm -hmm. yes both the neuroscience behind it and the front part of the cockpit of the brain where how we experience time or time shifts
1: yeah so um i mean to me one of the most fascinating findings in neuroscience in the past century or so, is that the same part of the brain that processes pleasure also processes pain and that they work like opposite sides of the balance. And one of the overarching rules of that balance is that it does want to remain level and that any deviation from neutrality is a stressor and that the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis And by the way, that biological drive toward homeostasis is not unique to the pleasure pathway, uh, the pleasure-pain pathway. It's true and repeated in many different um, aspects of our physiology and in the universe in general. So the drive toward homeostasis is really powerful. So what happens when we do something that's pleasurable is that we get a release of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain's reward pathway and our balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than our brain will start to downregulate dopamine transmission, dopamine receptors in order to bring that balance level again. But to do that, it doesn't just bring dopamine levels back down to tonic baseline levels, it actually brings it below baseline levels. So we go into a dopamine deficit state for a period of time, an equal and opposite period of time before restoring baseline levels. One way to think about this is that Neuroadaptation adaptation gremlins hop on the pain side, they bring the balance level again, but they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and that's the come down, the hangover, the after effect, before hopping off and letting homeostasis reassert itself. Another really important rule governing that balance is that with repeated exposures to the same or a similar stimulus, That initial pleasurable response gets weaker and shorter in duration, and the after response gets stronger and longer. It's as if our brain remembers and our brain overcompensates if we continue to expose ourselves to the same kinds of intoxicants or feel-good drugs and behaviors. And so the result of that, iteratively over time, if we continue to ingest that substance, especially if it's a highly potent intoxicant that releases a whole lot of dopamine at once, is that we end up in a chronic dopamine deficit state. We end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they could fill this whole room. We've effectively changed our pleasure-pain set point, and now we've got a balance that's chronically tipped to the side of pain in order to compensate for the constant influx of dopamine in the reward pathway. And that's really important for a couple of reasons because it means when we get to that point, when we're not using our drug, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. And when we do use our drug, it typically doesn't work the way it did before. We need it just to level the balance and feel normal. It no longer is enough to tip our balance to the side of pleasure We need ever more potent potent forms over time to get that same effect.
0: And we can kind of see this in the desperation, increasing desperation of people's behaviors around highly addictive drugs.
1: Yes, exactly. Which
0: may not just be substances, but they may be behaviors as well.
1: Yeah, and you see it in the phenomenology of addiction, but I th- I believe and this is one of the major hypotheses of dopamine nation. I believe it we're seeing we're seeing it collectively as societies and rich nations as we're now living in this world of incredible overabundance, I do feel like the rising rates of depression, anxiety and suicide can be explained by the constant bombardment of dopamine and that we are now having to compensate for, for this world of overabundance by downregulating our own natural endogenous dopamine production such that uh, we're all, you know, in a state of distress unless we're titillating ourselves. But anyway, that's a kind no, of... No, that's
0: actually really important point. And I know you're familiar with the idea of mismatch, and it's something I've talked about before in other shows. but. A kind of practical musing around it as I I thought, gosh, what does Anna think when she goes into the grocery store?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, one thing is I've noticed if I go hungry, I buy a lot more junk food than if I've uh, eaten before I go. I I think that's been a well-described phenomenon. You know, so here's the thing. Food is actually not a particularly potent drug for me. And and it gets to the whole thing of inter-individual variability and drug of choice, um food ever since I was a kid it was kind of fuel so I'm not vulnerable to sugar um I don't have a big sweet tooth um if I'm going to eat something that's got a lot of punch I prefer salty to sweet
0: So you're down the chip aisle
1: Yeah right right but even <laughs> then you know I can kind of take I can kind of take it or leave it but but I have my drug of choice which I do talk about in the book and that's you know basically attachment love sex I mean that's my drug and, and, I, and again, I just think it, it raises the really important point that, you know, all of these feel-good substances and behaviors, especially the way in which technology has allowed them to become uber-potent and accessible, means that even those of us who are relatively, let's say, immune or less vulnerable to the problem of addiction now are likely to get addicted, and I would put myself in that category, and I do talk about how I got addicted to romance novels, and I got a Kindle, and that made it worse, and you know all, all of that sort of thing. Um, but but so to answer your question, you know the grocery store is not my trigger unless I'm in the aisle with the cheap paperbacks.
0: Right. Well, I was thinking. Uh, right. I got gotcha. you. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. I was thinking more of a cultural assessment there, looking at the way the most common grocery stores, you know, superstores. You look at them, and there is just kind of a reward stimulation and pleasure stimulation. And so much of the food is empty calories and, and, and modified and just kind of hitting at those, you know, pleasure desire circuits that, and what you were starting to talk about in terms of this, you know, indulgences and the, the volume and the amplitude of small and big pleasures being everywhere in our environment at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the incredible overabundance of these high sugar, high fat, high um, salt foods. The use of technology to create flavors that didn't even exist before, things like French toast ice cream. I mean, where, where, why, why would we need French toast ice cream? Like? I don't know. You know, ice cream is pretty good. French toast is pretty good, but that's not good enough for us. We need to combine those flavors, which again speaks to tolerance, right? Needing more and more of the drug to get the same effect yes. eating more potent forms one of the one of the reliable ways to overcome tolerance is to combine two potent drugs together and whether it's you know heroin plus Xanax or french toast and ice cream um, it's happening you know everywhere we look
0: it is and and you were starting to raise that one of your main theses is, is this age of overindulgence and overabundance of things and so Where does that leave us? I mean, it leaves us, I think this gets into the vulnerability question I started the show with is why are we vulnerable to this situation around dopamine circuits and and behavior and addiction?
1: Our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And it's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. The problem is that we have transformed the world to one of overwhelming abundance and as you say there's now a mismatch between our primitive wiring and the modern ecosystem that we've created. And the result is that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction and I really hold out my patients, people with severe addiction in recovery, as modern day prophets for the rest of us for how to navigate this dopamine overloaded um, kind of world that we're living in now. Because I do think it's a major modern challenge. You know, we have all of our basic survival needs met. We're insulated from not just pain but most physical sensations uh, for our much longer lives than ever before. So we have more time on any given day, we have more days, we have more leisure, we have more money, um, and then we have all of these incredible drugified experiences. And I think it's a, it's a huge challenge that we need to start you know, proactively thinking about, um, and, and, you know, the, the lessons of the balance that I encourage in dopamine nation are really to embrace a new kind of asceticism, um, and to actually, um, invite painful experiences into our lives as a way to, you know, shore up our own re-regulating homeostatic mechanisms.
0: I love that you're talking about that because, and I love you use the phrase asceticism because as I was working my way through your book, I really thought about that. I thought about, I mean, I thought about so many things that just reminded me of my life experience. Like I've taken a little fascination to opera lately, and I was thinking about opera, and I'm like, you know, the way opera is sung is somewhere between pain and pleasure, mm. and there, and somehow it's a. I'm like, okay, so that's interesting to me, mm-hmm. and I thought about this picture I saw or this story long ago in, in some Hindu sect where people make vows of holding their arms up all their lives to the point of atrophy. And so you see these pictures of people that make these ascetic vows, which are obviously must be painful, but it's done as a kind of triumph thing and they, they dedicate their lives to it. And it just always left an impression of like, why would you do that? Yeah, And the asceticism also brings up for me, a lot of questions about our religious journey as a Western culture. And, you know, I thought about the movie, The Mission and Robert De Niro's character, forgetting his name and the way he uses pain to relieve himself of his guilt, Mm. you know, and keeps Mm -hmm. putting suffering on himself. Mm -hmm. And so I became more curious about not just, okay, pain moves us closer to pleasure. We can use asceticism. But our greater relationship and the narrative we have around pain, right? And and so some of the narratives, I and I started thinking about. This is my brain going here um, <laughs> right. about I love it. about a baby boomer culture and how the baby boomers really radically transformed so much. And I, you could make a really f- fair argument. I'd say a lot of the excesses we are came when they threw off a lot of the generational codes of conduct and maybe for some real important reasons, maybe there's also some suppression to pain and, or excuse me, suppression of pleasure that is part of this dance and this dynamic. So I liked, and I have a story which I'll share why I started embracing more pain out of your reading your book, but I want to talk about these, these, the consequences of this idea as we look into our history and our culture and our now. I think you get my drift.
1: Yes, I do. And I like the way that you frame it as a process of dialectical shifts through history, because I think that's right. You know, these are fluctuations that, um, you know, culture goes through. Um, and I, I do I do agree with you that the 1960s and, you know, the hippie generation, the summer of love, you know, tune in, turn on, drop so, out, um, that, that that what they were embracing was kind of, shucking off these constraining normative rules, you know, of their generation uh, in favor of a kind of a free embrace, let's just say, of hedonism. But unfortunately, uh, I think that now we've we've progressed to a point where um, not just culturally, but also just in terms of technology and industry and access and quantity and potency, um, you know, our major problem is that Um, We have this kind of relentless pursuit of of pleasure for its own sake, which is making us all more unhappy. And so I do think it's time for a cultural recalibration of all of that. Um, And I do think also that even in these sort of dialectical shifts through history, that we are at an unprecedented point in human history in terms of the sheer quantity, ubiquity, and potency of, um, drugs, drugs in so many different forms, which I do think makes this um, a kind of a unique and new problem.
0: A quick musical interlude here to give a big appreciation for our guest, Dr. Anna Lemke, to invite you to support the How Humans Work podcast by going to our Patreon page, forward slash How Humans Work Pod, or at our website, howhumanswork.us. At this point in the conversation, there was a technical glitch, so the vocal mix on my end is going to change. Nonetheless, I hope you do enjoy the rest of this really amazing conversation with Dr. Lemke. So for me, what it comes back to is this question around our place in the world. The metaphor I was thinking about, I don't know if you know about orcas in captivity. No. When they're brought into captivity, a couple things happen with them. One is they get this thing called dorsal fin collapse that huh. their main dorsal fin starts to tilt and fold down a little bit.
1: Interesting.
0: And and it is interesting. And it, they think it's because some of the pressure gradients that happen in open ocean swimming aren't yeah. there in pools. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But the other thing I heard, and I don't think this one's scientific, I, I just heard kind of more word of mouth, is that orcas, they need the games to help them with their predation instinct. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, all the activity and games keeps them from being too stressed out. Right. And so it's a simulation. And, and so that we need these simulations. We don't live in a time of scarcity. Everything's exactly. pretty well taken care of on an energy resource level. Right. And so the work and the pain of gathering and hunting and gathering aren't there for us. And so we are in a way in this zoo of right. our own making.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: And so we have this challenge of this ancient circuitry. Mm -hmm. So how do we work with our pleasure pain circuits, knowing that we're in a synthetic environment of our own making? And how do we keep those alive without making dopamine, seeking pleasure, craving an outright bad thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I love the orca example. I think you're absolutely right. We're kind of in cages of our own making that this we're at a tipping point and this, this this new era of overwhelming overabundance and also drugification of many different types of substances and behaviors um, is really the new form of stress and distress in our lives, and that you know, we have to reassert homeostasis because that is the driving physiologic um, imperative. In biological systems, and the way that we have to do that is to essentially eschew or distance ourselves from the constant consumption of intoxicants, which is normative today, and even go so far as to intentionally seek out friction, intentionally invite pain into our lives, um, do things that are hard, and. You know, I am not, I'm not espousing or, or endorsing a kind of um, masochism. What I'm trying to say is that we, we, we're all sitting on the couch, not moving our bodies in a way for which our bodies were not designed. So we really have to, you know, intentionally combat against this hyper convenient world that we've created. And you know, there are many ways to do that. Um, you know, exercise is an obvious one. Ice cold water baths have become popular. You know, doing cognitively challenging things, creative things, emotionally challenging things, forcing ourselves to do things that may make us anxious or that um, are, again, just simply inconvenient. And doing that on a daily basis, so being very intentional about not taking the easy way being very intentional about doing things that are hard and not for moral reasons but really for in many ways selfish reasons so that we can feel good we actually need to embrace pain in order to live fulfilling you know and contented lives and so that's essentially you know what what i recommend and yet it's super counterculture right so i'll have patients come in and you know they'll say I'm feeling bad. And I'll say, you know what, do, do this thing that makes you feel a little worse as a way to feel better. Right. It's like, what, <laughs> what, what, I mean, that's not, that's not what psychiatry, you know, like, where's the, where's all that feel good empathy and stuff. It's like, oh, I'm empathic, but I'm telling you, you know, you know, the biological imperative is that we're constantly interacting with our environment in an iterative process And through that interaction, we are changing our internal biology and the way that most of us now are interacting with this hyper convenient world is actually um, de-evolution for us. It's actually taking us backwards. We have to intentionally interact in a new way.
0: Pain, you don't just mean hurtful pain. There must be some other kind of way in which you're talking about pain here.
1: Well, I do actually mean physical pain, so not in extreme versions of that, not, not cutting on ourselves, and you know, that's just another form of um, a drug. In fact, there are interesting studies showing that if you expose a rat to a single injection of cocaine and slice open its brain, you will see an arborization of dopaminergic neurons in the reward pathway as a result of a single cocaine exposure. But if you take that same species of rat and you expose it to a violently painful foot shock, you will see the exact same arborization of dopaminergic neurons. So extreme forms of pain work just like drugs. So that's not what I'm talking about because what we don't want is that huge deviation from homeostatic baselines. But if you gently pulse on the pain side of the balance, which is called hormesis, which is Greek for set into motion, what you do is trigger your body's own re-regulating homeostatic mechanisms to start to upregulate in small measure our own endogenous opioid, endocannabinoid, endocerotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine systems that over time in an iterative way gradually tips our balance to the the side of pleasure or at least allows us to preserve a resilient neutrality because that's where we really wanna be. We want a pleasure pain balance that's supple, that's able to respond to modest rewards, that's able to be resilient in the face of painful stimuli, and that can easily restore homeostasis. What we don't want to do is get stuck, you know, on one side or another, and essentially, you know, stress our system.
0: I'm thinking about parenting a little bit, and I'm thinking about my own children, and I know you have children yourself. Um, but this idea of how we parent ourselves into that resilient system, or, or how we parent our kids, or how we be a friend to people knowing this vulnerability that the system is in an extreme playhouse of, of pleasure and pain and possibility and how we center back to these more time tested human values of, of presence, attention, contentment, connection, you know, all those other right? qualities yeah. that are there. And it, I'm going to throw one other layer cause I do that, but which is, You know, one of the counter arguments when I was talking about your work with a colleague is that, you know, we're actually in a time of scarcity in a certain way, that ancient people may have had more plenitude of values, more plenitude of quality connection. I'm giving you a little chunk to chew on here.
1: It's great. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. Like what what we have a plenitude of now is access to highly potent intoxicants. What we have less access to is the kinds of adaptive sources of dopamine like deep human connections that are more enduring and that can, you know, bring us pleasure in a way that's um, more immune to tolerance, dependence, withdrawal, and all of those, those bad aspects of, of too much dopamine. And I think, you know, when it comes to thinking about parenting, I mean, what I do, you know, what we do in our family is we just transparently talk about the neuroscience of pleasure and pain, um, what what it means to ingest substances or engage in behaviors that release huge amounts of dopamine at once. Uh, We talk a lot about what it feels like in the moment to, for example, be online and then what it feels like right afterwards and learning to be aware and mindful of that and to watch for the cumulative effect of that such that we get can get to a point where that virtual world and being in the matrix is the only place we want to be and the real world starts to pale in comparison. And the reason for that is too much dopamine and also because we're not investing in our real relationships and in our real lives. And so cyclically, our real lives do become actually more impoverished because we're not spending time there, right? Mm-hmm. And how it takes an investment of time and creativity and energy and also tolerance for a certain degree of boredom and imperfection and frustration that is inherent in real life and in real life relationships. But so worth it because then what you get is that connection and that safety and trust through time that over the long haul is going to serve you a lot better than, you know, the quick dopamine hits from an online community So I think talking about the drugification of the world, how dopamine works with our kids. um, Can you spell out drugification a little bit more? I mean, what I mean by that is the way in which even previously healthy and adaptive substances and behaviors have now been turned into drugs. And the perfect example is social media. So we we are wired to be social creatures. You know, being in a tribe, from an evolutionary perspective, protects us from predators, allows us to uh, use scarce resources more wisely, allows us to find mating partners. But what social media and online apps have done is they've essentially taken that and distilled it down to its purest intoxicating forms, such that with very minimal effort, we are exposed to a universe of humans many of whom appear to be much more beautiful, smart and engaging than they are in real life, but our brain can't really sift that out. And there's no need for problem solving or frustration tolerance on the same order as within our own families. If we don't like what's happening online, we just unfriend somebody or we go to a new website or we start all over again or we change our avatar. So, I mean these are really escapist drugs, these are these are fantasies, these are You know, um, we get a hit of dopamine when people like us, um, when people, you know, regard us highly, when they retweet us. We get a hit of dopamine when we experience the same emotion at the same time as other people, which explains why we like watching videos of people watching videos, because we are then caught up in that emotion loop, but we didn't really have to work for it, right? And we developed tolerance very quickly, and then we need a more potent form. Now we all need to be outraged together. Now we need to have millions of followers because just, you know, a handful is not going to be enough to sustain that drive for dopamine. In other words, the drive for dopamine becomes the primary aim, and then the human connection piece is really just a means to that end. Rather than the human connection being primary and dopamine being something we have to really work for, We have to tell the truth. We have to do things for our spouse or our partner or whatever it is. We have to compromise, you know, with our kids or with our friends. We have to tolerate their imperfections. We have to be willing to be bored and to listen. I mean, it's a lot of work.
0: No, I love that. I I love that at so many levels. And I think what I hear you saying is that pleasure for its own sake can be problematic and addictive and that pleasure should more be a byproduct or satisfaction Which gets me into a question I have around dopamine versus serotonin with Robert Lustig's work in Hacking of the American Mind. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And and so his argument is that, you know, this contentment side is more of a serotonin based neural pathway and you can never get too much contentment and you don't experience the same kind of uh, side effects uh, neurochemically or socially or any behaviorally that you do when you're just in a state of contentment.
1: I agree on a philosophical level that, that that's what we're looking for, and I would call contentment homeostasis. Um, I, I think on a neurobiological level, I mean, we do know that people can abuse serotonergic drugs. That's what LSD is; it, it causes flooding of serotonin. So any of those feel good, um, you know, neurotransmitters. If if we find a drug in that mimics them, and then we expose our brains to a much a larger amount of that um, than, than our brain has really evolved to, to tolerate or manage or compensate for, we can run into trouble. So I guess I would disagree that there's no amount of serotonin that's too much. I would say there there are there are amounts that are too much.
0: Well, thank you. I, and I might be misrepresenting his work. It's been a couple of years since I looked at it, but the, the main idea is we have a, a contentment pathway. And I hear you're suggesting that's homeostasis. So I um, you know, when we think about where we need to go, you know, both personally, like I did a little thing before this interview, which is I, I was never a coffee drinker. And I saw this guy at Whole Foods one day and I just kind of saw him looking at the coffee machine and getting his coffee. And I decided, I want to try this, you know?
1: Uh-huh. And
0: so, you know, a year and a half later, I was like, I'm, I, I think I'm semi-addicted to coffee. Like it's having impact and compulsions uh-huh. around it, you know, yeah. I cravings for it, you know, it's like, I'm not a... I have some addictive behaviors, but not really around drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I resonate with you more of like the desire for love and loving and connection, right? And 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 the way that can work out in in my relationships and, and the way I approach life, and then yeah. also in um, more food, more more yeah. like food food pleasures and mm-hmm. and, and those right. kind of things. But mm-hmm. I did two weeks without, um, you know. It was also, there was kombucha in there and then kombucha became bubbly drinks. (laughs) And then, you know, I went to decaf with some cacao and I'm like, you know, I just, Uh I want to take these, this habit out of my life and just stress myself in that way. Yeah. And this is why I was really interested in this time experience. And I I think you really articulated well, the the kind of human values that come when we invest in the presence, not based on pleasure seeking or pain avoidance, but we're in Mm -hmm. homeostasis. But there's this other thing that started happening with time. The week became so much more nuanced. My uh-huh. my sense of time experience really it was like it was an alteration in my perception and relationship with the flow of time.
1: Yes. And I wanted
0: yeah. I want to hear you talk about that.
1: Yeah, I love that. So yeah, that that's been my experience too. And I also find it fascinating. Um, So, I mean, just anecdotally, I'll never forget a patient of mine who was addicted to methamphetamine. He would talk about how when he was using, he felt like he could cheat time, that that period that he was using, he felt like it was sort of like it didn't count. Of course it did, it counted wildly. And when he would come out of his methamphetamine binge two days later, there were all kinds of horrific consequences. But there was a way in which dopamine just hijacked his sense of that time mattering, which was really powerful. Um, And what I have noticed, I mean, first of all, I would just say the vast majority of us, we organize our day around our rewards. You know, I'm going to do this and this, and then I'm going to get a break, or I'm going to make it through my day. And then when I get get home, I'm going to have a drink, or I'm going to watch my show, or I'm going to read my book, or I'm going to eat this food. And it's just sort of fundamental to the way that we humans organize time. It's probably been true for millennia, but I think it's more true now than ever that we're constantly kind of micro adjusting and controlling the way that we feel with these minor and major intoxicants. And it's the way that we organize the space-time continuum. So one of the Interesting things that I think happen psychologically when we say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything that's rewarding for me. I mean, I'm gonna eat, you know, and I'm gonna sleep and I'm gonna take care of basic functions, but I'm gonna cut out everything that I look forward to. It's a really interesting experiment because what ends up happening is that when you are no longer looking forward to something, then you're very much here in the moment because you have to be, because now is the same as the next eight hours. There's nothing that's going to change your inner experience. And the result is that you are very present in a really interesting way. And so that's why I really love the experiment of the dopamine fast, not just for people who are addicted or for people who have compulsive overconsumption, even people who are using in moderation God bless them. Um, It's a fascinating experiment to just sort of say, what would it be like if there were nothing to look forward to? You can even extend that outward to a much longer time arc. What if the only relief from my suffering is in fact my death? You know, which is going to come presumably in a a long time from now. That is also a really interesting thought experiment to me because it, it does change sort of our relationship with life it's sort of like if in my in my life in whatever time i have left and it's probably decades i cannot have any expectation of pleasure that really changes my orientation on you know what i expect of this life and and what i anticipate in terms of suffering and and in changing that expectation is okay well you know what I mean, life is hard. Today is hard. Now I can expect, you know, three more, four more decades of that. Okay. All right. You know, what happens to me paradoxically, and I'm not saying this is going to happen to everybody, but what happens to me paradoxically is that that gedunken experiment somehow creates a space for me um, to relax in my suffering. Because my suffering is never-ending I stopped kind of chasing that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there's, there's relief in that. And there's a sort of like, okay, well, it is what it is.
0: I don't know if I know how to think that yet. I I appreciate (laughs) that. But I was like, uh, can I even think that? I think it's going to take me a while to build up to it. But I have one other thought experiment I've done. That's been fairly profound in a similar way is, is to realize that I'm already dead. And there's a shift in perception of time and the fight around time and survival, you know, we're not fighting against pain in the world. We're accepting it and we're not fighting against mortality. We're just like, Oh yeah, it's a done deal.
1: Yeah. It's the end of striving. I think is maybe, maybe it's the end of striving. It's this kind of, this kind of radical acceptance of what is, which, which is very hard because we're natural strivers.
0: Yeah. And I want to celebrate that part too. Like I don't, there's this like, yeah, work with it. And I think this paradoxical part of that, but in terms of making peace with our human nature, how right. do we embrace striving in ourselves or utilize it in ways that are say not as harmful because it, in that moment when you're describing the meth addict, you know, I, I think about the kid who's there and the dad who, or the mom who's not there because they don't have the attention or presence and how painful that is and how powerful it is to reclaim our attention and how powerful mm-hmm. Reclaiming our behaviors and the substances and the way we're interacting with time and and reality and, and our needs as radical if you if you do it well, so yeah. the striving part I don't think is going to go away in my opinion
1: yeah, and I like I like your validation of it and 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 embracing it and, and it is such a part of our humanity which is not to be discarded. And it's not that I can, when I do those good Duncan experiments, I, I can't, I don't stay in that space, right? Those are things that I do. I kind of fluctuate. I mean, I'm as human as the next person, you know, See, I'm looking forward to, you know, my chocolate and uh, you know, whatever it is. But I think, you know, so how can we frankly indulge, but not overindulge, I think is, is the bottom line. And. Um, I think, you know, an idea is to keep this pleasure-pain balance in mind. If we do um, ingest or engage in intoxicants, try to avoid super potent ones that absolutely flood our brains and essentially constitute a huge stressor that our brains then have to work very hard to compensate for, space our indulgences out so that there's enough time in between for um, homeostasis to be restored. What we don't want to get into is cyclical, habitual, or daily use that ultimately in an iterative way um, gets us in this chronic dopamine deficit state um, where we're just kind of then chasing that substance to feel normal and it's no longer really giving us pleasure. Um, Making those times special and sacred, imbuing them with a special meaning. I love this example of you know, thousands of years ago, there was this primitive tribe, I don't remember the name, um, that every month, the entire village, including children would get stone cold drunk all together. but they would never drink at any other times. And there were apparently very low rates of reported alcohol addiction or other addictions in this primitive tribe. And yet everybody got drunk once a month together, you know, to the point of uh, passing out. But I think that's a nice example of How we can take, you know, intoxicants and that desire, which is a universal desire, I think, to just, you know, be gone, to forget ourselves for a period of time. How we can make that sacred um, and special and do it with others, creating a safe environment or container in which to do that at a very limited time and place. So those kinds of things, I think, are ways, you know, how to bind those experiences to make them safe, to make them special to make them not too often, um, and not too long in duration. And for some people, they just can't do that because the
0: risks are too high. And, and that's part of the learning and the risk of life, I think, huh? That's right. Well, you brought in, you know, that you're human too, and the season is dedicated towards passages. And I've really enjoyed your humanity, by the way. It just, it just comes through so much in your writing and, and your affability here in the show. But I want to give you a minute just to reflect on this passage you've been through with this book bringing this to life, giving birth to it and, and all that it's been, you know, to be in a high profile situations. I think I saw you're on T- Tucker Carlson. I yeah. didn't get the video for that. I was like, I want to see yeah. that, that conversation, <laughs> but you've been on Joe Rogan. You've been on uh, rich Roll, uh, Andrew Huberman, several, you know, high profile podcasts elsewhere. And I just, what it's like for you at this point in your life to, in your professional life to be putting this book forth.
1: Well, yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, I haven't gotten that question before. I will say that right before the book came out, I had a tremendous amount of anxiety, um, and that probably lasted. That that peaked and intensified for about two months just before the book came out, and I had a lot of fears. Um, you know, as you know, there's a lot of self-disclosure. I had fears about, you know, how I would be reviewed as a psychiatrist and an academic at a place like Stanford disclosing the things that I disclose in the book. I I had concerns about, you know, what people would think about my sharing my patient's stories, all of whom gave me permission to do that. But still, um, I, I was worried about that. I was worried that the message would fall flat. It's a message about embracing pain in our lives and eschewing pleasure. Um, it's a message about pro-social shame and about radical honesty. These are not things that you would typically think people would want to hear about. You know, it's about doing things that are hard. And um, uh, my number one reaction is that I've been relieved that um, people have understood what I've been trying to say, that I was able to communicate. I think I think that's one of the major drives in all humans, but I think it's really true for me. I, I want to be understood. I want um, people to to get what I'm talking about. And when they do that, that is very, very gratifying to me. And so that that's been great. And yeah, it's been really a pleasure to be able to have conversations like this and with other people to see how the book has allowed people to kind of reframe their lives and their behavior, how people are carrying the ideas with them through their day, thinking about their behavior and their relationship with substances and behaviors in, in new ways. That's been great. I mean, incredibly rewarding, you know, wonder, lots of wonderful emails, inspiring emails from people who have been um, prompted to, you know, change their behavior because essentially that's what dopamine nation is asking people to do. It's asking them to experiment and to not just be in their heads and change thoughts, but to actually change behavior and subject their physical beings to difficult sensory experiences and through that process from a bottom up, actually gain new thoughts about themselves and the world.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guests, as well as Jeffrey and his work, helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.